City Limits. Limits, brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. All right. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55am, if you didn't get that from that little cart. It's probably uh, too much for you. All right. How's it going, Kev? Corey, going well. Corey over there, Kevin here, Kevin Healy, Corey yeah. Green. Corey and this is the fifth Wednesday of a month, so we've got no specific subject. But indeed, an, an interview was held over from last week. We couldn't get on last week because, as it turned out, when we tried to ring Auntie Jenny um, in Sydney at the Redfern embassy um they'd been struck by that storm and they were mm. they were fighting away <laughs> no time to be talking to us but she's going to come on later in the program today yes yeah, yes terrific. okay and also um we are going to have a discussion around um environmental cities sustainable cities etc we've got a couple of people we're going to talk to in about five minutes or so and they are fiona armstrong who's with the um she's with doctors for the environment and also quite the part of the climate and health alliance and um, accompanying her and also talking about it on the show will be Billy, Billy Giles Courty is the other person we're going to talk to. She's with the Makaki Centre uh, at Melbourne Uni and um, we'll talk to both of them in about five minutes or so and, and talk about what, well, what or how do you achieve a sustainable city in this current environment. Uh, but a couple of things I suppose we should catch up on. One is the one we've talked about in recent weeks about the, um, the parkland in Sunshine being plugged off by the, by the uh, commissioners. Last week it got into the daily press, the Age had a story about it, then it made, apparent. I didn't see it, but it made the commercial telenews on Friday night. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that of that show, um, I've done it again, I've got two sets of earphones on, that's quite ridiculous. Anyway, um, but in the course of that show, uh, how do I do that? Great mind, obviously. Uh, anyway, um, in the course of that um, that show, Premier Andrews apparently said that the commissioners are there to administer but not to flog off property, so that's quite promising. Excellent. In, in the last couple of days, despite that, the commissioners have apparently commissioned some company in Footscray to go about the, the sale procedure. But uh, I think it's looking like the community's going to win that one because let's hope they do anyway. It's looking fairly promising. Uh, and the week before, we did interview Lend Lisa. Have you brought that in today? I have. Because we, we were a bit remiss last week, I guess. We, we said we'd, we'd, we'd contacted them. They were going to fax us. They were going to email us a, a response. It mm. did come when we came off air. It came after the program two weeks ago. But we'll, we'll read out what they said anyway. And, Corey, you got it. So there you are. Well, look, while you're doing that, I'll pour a cup of tea if you like. Want a cup of tea? Oh, I'd love a cup of okay, tea. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Well, actually, interestingly enough, the email didn't come straight from Thorne, the parent company of uh, of uh, Radio Rentals, but from Hill and Knowlton, which Hill and Knowlton Strategies, who are an international PR firm that represent 50% of global Fortune 500 companies. So you hope they're good at what they do. So are you ready for some highly paid, high-grade mm. press release, mm. uh, press statement? Hello, Kevin and Corey. Sorry for the delay in getting this to you, but the person who was reviewing it didn't get back to me until this morning. Please see Thorne's statement below. Thorne's business, Radio Rentals, has been helping people access household goods for nearly 80 years. We exist because we provide a service customers around Australia want. 
The whole business is based on giving people a fair go. For many people, renting these goods is the only way they can get them since they don't have the money to buy them outright and for varying reasons may not qualify for a loan. In this sense, it is no different from rental accommodation. Radio Rentals adheres fully to responsible lending guidelines, including all customers being provided a copy of the terms and conditions prior to installation. Saying that, this is my own commentary here, that you can't get the terms and conditions until you're well into the process. Okay, back to what they're saying. But that was in parentheses. Yes. Uh, we have a strong code of ethics, and we are very committed to protecting customers. Thorn holds an Australian credit licence and adheres to the responsible lending policy, which means that product costs are fully disclosed in contracts prior to signing. Once again, I'm going to put in parentheses that is well into the process. Back to them. And rigorous processes are in place to ensure we don't commit people to payments they cannot afford. When comparing pricing of radio rentals products with other household good providers, it is important to incorporate risk and cost of credit as well as the fact that the goods are delivered, installed and serviced throughout the contract for free. Thorn also allows for a product downgrade or upgrade in the case of circumstances. Unfortunately, we cannot get you a contract at this stage. Yes, so they don't have a spare copy of their own contract? No, I, I did ask them whether, whether it was possible. One of the questions I asked was, is it possible for the media to see the contract in terms? And they said they'd check that out. So that last paragraph obviously indicates they couldn't show it to us. No, no. Although they did use the word risk, and I think that's fairly important in this situation. But anyway, okay, that's their response. And um, um, also I got a lovely press release from them. Oh, good. Radio Rentals helps out Bendigo fire victim. Aren't they just loving? Oh, they're good people. Um, Okay, before we go to our first guest, I thought this week it's worth mentioning because um, um, last week um, an SBS, not that it had anything to do with SBS, it was in his private capacity, but a bloke who was a sports reporter for SBS, Mr. Min, I never heard of him until this happened. But anyway, Mm. that aside, uh, Scott McIntyre, he um, sent out some comments about about um, Anzac, which people considered to be terribly offensive. I think he mm. said the sort of thing we'd say. I think it was pretty, pretty... I don't think there's anything he said that I wouldn't agree with much. Also committed war crimes, for et, one. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, Verifiable But facts. it's interesting. Two of, the great, two of the great defenders of free speech have said that it, they had no choice but to sack him. And uh, Tim Wilson, the, um, the government appointment as a human rights commissioner who who vehemently defended the right of that um, well-known Herald Sun columnist to Mm. uh, free speech, even though he was knocked off in court because they pointed out what he said wasn't actually true. Mm -hmm. Um, His right to free speech was defended and and the Herald Sun would never think of sacking him, and yet um, they... um, Tim Wilson says that this bloke deserved it because of what he said. That's a great defender of free speech. And the very defender of free speech himself, the same columnist, came out and said he deserves no tears and he got what he got what he deserved. Now, here's the man who defended himself when he was actually proven to be lying by a court. Uh, he's right to do that. Uh, the other bloke who defended him, but now when someone else does it, they're... Uh, I'm not suggesting there's double standards here, Corey, but um, what other explanation could there possibly be? No, there's a single standard. They don't want verifiable facts cluttering up the media landscape. Oh, thanks. Okay. That's yes. Terrific. Yes. Right. Well, you've sorted that one out for us. Um, so I'll can see. we talk about the um, Australian Financial Review? Yes, yes, we can. Well, I thought that their leading story was quite interesting. Right. Do you want to, do you want to have another look at it? or you? Uh, no, I've got note? my notes here. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, isn't that nice? It's wonderful. So, um, <laughs> actually, I might, I might have to have a look at it. The right. headline said something like, self-funded retirees can suck it. Oh. 
But um, I'll go to page one for you. Make it easy for you. Yeah. What was uh, what was the actual the words? Is it on page one? Pa- page one. No, no. Page the front cover. Oh, there's something in wraparound, is there? Oh, here we are. Yes. Um, wealthy mums to lose on childcare subsidies. That story. No, self-funded retirees. Ah. Uh, uh, Queensland keeps investors balk at them. No, this newspaper must be a new technology for you. You don't, Look, you don't have you. the you, internet. You, no, that's right. Don't, that's it. You, you, you don't have a mobile phone, and now you can't even operate a newspaper. No, that's right. Yeah, it's just all. Oh, you turn the pages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's very, very, very complicated. Ah, it's this one right in the middle of the page in oh, the big you, letters. It doesn't say it in the headline. You confuse me. No end. <laughs> Glenn Stevens tells retirees to get used to low returns. Right, and Glenn Stevens, for people, is the because of course everyone knows he's the Reserve Bank bloke. Exactly, the Reserve Bank governor. So he's talking about uh, the self-funded retirees having the lowest investment yield potentially in human history. It's very uh, dramatic, I mm. thought. And, um, yeah, I thought the whole um, thing was interesting because basically he's saying that with Australia being such a um, business-unfriendly climate and these uh, self-funded retirees, uh, you know, obviously they get their money from um, shares. They don't, they don't just have an annuity. They, the, the money that they have is invested in shares and then um, they get money out of that. So it's actually very dependent on the uh, state of the stock market. So basically the, the thing with that is that it's making working people um, reliant on the stock market for money, which makes the system whereby, uh, which you're looking at me funny. It's putting me off. Oh, I won't look at you funny. Thank you, thank you. Right, right. Which makes the system whereby um, businesses uh, work for the benefit of shareholders instead of benefit for the whole community and the workers, actually in the interest of the workers. So, I think that was quite interesting. And and the summary at the end was that if. If self-funded retirees wanted to have more money, then Australia had to uh, be a better investment um, country and we had to increase, what is that word? Productivity. Productivity. I'm sure there'll be productivity, yeah. The, um, in fact, we've mentioned on this program a number of times the fact that the big, including people like CBUS, which are supposedly run by workers for workers, mm. their investments are all in areas. None of those areas are in social areas. There's people screaming out for public housing and, and, and homeless, yet mm. they're investing massively in, in, in big office residential developments that are for the super rich. Um, it's no pun in super meant there, by the way, um, and um, and and we you know we've argued that that some of that money at least should be going if they're going to invest it that way it should be going into providing socially useful stuff. We better take a break and come. You finish the one by the way because we well we I thought one of the interesting guess. things was they mentioned that um, if somebody had a million dollar nest egg with these very low returns, they're only going to get one thousand two hundred ninety seven dollars a fortnight which was very similar to couple combined fortnight pension with extras. Hmm. So maybe we should just go with a pension system. Yeah, but that's what they're trying to go. Well, it's all very complicated, isn't it? We, we simple very people. very complicated. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, people have paid a lifetime of taxes. They don't... I don't know. Well, just... well, I mean, Super was bought in by the Keating government, in fact, to effectively to... to, to to lower the bill for the pension in the future. And, uh, you know, it's governments, in fact, trying to pass the buck elsewhere. But uh, anyway, it's... 
That's, that's another question. And if it works properly, I suppose it does. But it's a, it's a whole area we should look at one day because I think there are grave risks in the whole system. Mm. Like you could lose all your money. Um, that's one grave risk. I would have thought that's fairly serious. Let's take a break, come back and get our guests on the line. Okay, this um, song is a special one for Kev. It's called um, Almost Cut My Hair. That's his experience. <laughs> You're listening to City Limits on 3CR. Have we got Billy on the line? Yes. Billy, oh, there you are. Okay. Excellent. Billy Giles Cordy is with the Macaque Institute or Macaque Centre. Can you tell us something about the Macaque Centre, Billy, just to fill us in on the start? Yeah, our centre focuses on social justice, so how you design society really to make people healthy and to give you know fair and equitable sort of life. So my focus is on urban design and health, but we have other people in the program who look at um, how social resources affect local people, how workplaces affect people, how racism affects people, and you know, we try and create policies and conditions for, for good health. There we go. Sounds like a major project, if you don't mind my saying so. Um, Billy, I'm sorry for that delay, by the way, but Fiona, Fiona Armstrong we were trying to get, and um, the phone kept ringing out, so I don't know what's happened there. We'll, we'll catch up with her some other time. But, Billy, um, we, we wanted to look today at sustainable cities and how you, how you provide a healthy, environmentally sustainable city. Um, have you any thoughts on that? I'm sure you do, but what do you see as being a sustainable city? Well, a sustainable city for me is a city where people can use alternatives to, to driving, so walking and cycling, public transport use. Uh, we need to obviously still plan for freight, but driving should be probably the least part of the equation. So if you design a city that's very accessible, uh, as opposed to planning for mobility of the motor vehicle, then we create a more sustainable and actually a more healthy city because one of the big problems we face in public health is that people are not being physically active enough. And I mean, that sounds sort of trivial, you know, we think we all know that it's good to be active, but if there's one thing you could do for your health, um, it's to be more physically active. And even just walking to the shop and doing that a number of times a day can actually be really beneficial for people's health, uh, their chronic disease profiles and, um, and contribute to reducing the risk of obesity. So I think from a sustainability point of view, uh, really thinking about how we can, both on the urban fringe, in the middle suburbs, and right in the inner city, create environments that encourage the alternative to driving um, would really make a much more sustainable and healthy city. Um, fantastic. Fantastic. I, I, well, I, I was thinking a bit about the middle suburbs there because um, the, the, in a city you can survive, I survive without a car and ride a bike, so there you are. But but in the middle suburbs there's many places where, particularly if they've got one of those one-hour bus services or something, even to get to the shops you've virtually got to have a car. I know, and that's really where I think what we're doing now in Melbourne is there's a, a, the new government plan. It's about Plan Melbourne. I think there's a great opportunity if we can really harness resources and really make that happen to create the 20-minute city. Um, and one of the problems that we've done is that we, in the, you know, in the sort of, I guess it was the 70s, 80s, we when the motor vehicle was really, you know, premier, uh, we really focused on planning for the car rather than planning for people. Um, and this means that you've got more traffic on the road, we've got more, um, you know, less opportunities to walk because everything was designed around the car. So, you know, disconnected streets, so lots of cul-de-sacs. And people think, oh, that makes it really safe. In fact, people feel safe, but actually because there's lack of surveillance, there's often more, more opportunities for crime, which is sort of slightly counterintuitive. So what we need to do is to really think about how we can 
fix those suburbs up, the middle suburbs, because the reason why that's so important is because there's so much more infrastructure there than out on the urban fringe. And what governments across the globe are really struggling with is that how, in a resource-constrained future, we can provide enough resources for people on the urban fringe. And we, we wouldn't dream about building a community without water and sanitation, but it takes many, many years for the schools to go in, for the shops and services to arrive, for public transport to be delivered. And as a result of that, poor people living on the fringe often have no choice but to drive. They can't cycle anywhere, they can't walk anywhere, they can walk for recreation because there's often parks and that's great, that's really important, but that's not enough really to create a sustainable future. So really we've got some big challenges ahead and I think people in the middle of level suburbs uh, really need to think about you know, equity and the potential of their suburbs to be retrofitted to allow more people in. Now Rob Adams um, from the City of Melbourne has made a proposal about that we need to build more you know, medium density housing along um, public transport routes mm. and you know closer into the city. And that is a good idea. It is a good idea. Um, but people resist, of course, the density. Um, what the den- where the density will work is where we really think carefully about how that's well, that's built, uh, how it's designed, uh, how we design it so that we also have all the resources for people who live there. So for the children who will live there, for the um, adolescents that will live there. Uh, and so that means that we need to put, you know, have infrastructure, so social infrastructure, schools, um, parks, that sort of thing. So we need to think carefully about doing it, but I do think we need to have a grown-up conversation about that because it's so critical that more people have the opportunity to live closer to the city. I just want to add one thing, though, that um, what we need to think about carefully when we're building that high-density or medium-density housing along the public transport routes is we protect people from all the environmental stressors that come from living on busy roads. And that's that can be designed. It's not a problem if we design for it. And the stressors I'm thinking about are exposure to air pollution from the cars, um, noise from the vehicles as well. Um, so we need to be planning that in right from the outset so that we don't create, again, inequity where you know, poorer people who can't afford the alternative live on the busy roads and get exposed to all the environmental stressors and everyone else lives very comfortably in their suburbs and you know, have business as usual. So we've got some you know, big challenges ahead, I think, in terms of achieving that. And I do think it would be great if we had a, you know, a more... Um, grown-up conversation about these things because it's really critical for us to move forward as a city uh, in Melbourne, uh, and not just Melbourne, but cities across the you know, across Australia, really. How do um, high-density cities like Hong Kong work? Well, I mean, I don't know that... Yeah, well, Hong Kong, I suppose it's a different settle, kettle of fish, isn't it, because we're talking high, high-density. And I guess somewhat alarmingly to me, really, is that we are, you know, in inner city going down that route, going for the high, high density. I don't believe that's going to produce good outcomes for uh, cities. I don't believe that's a sustainable future for Melbourne. Um, and that's because, you know, anything over nine storeys has to be mechanically um, air-conditioned. So, you know, they're not sustainable to build. Um, they're not sustainable to cool. Um, it takes five minutes to get in a 40-storey building. It's going to take five minutes to get from the, you know, the, the up roof to the bottom. Uh, everyone's going to be relying on much more power and electricity. So that's not really a sustainable future, even though people are living in a more compact environment. I think what we need to think about is how we can bring down the densities lower 
um, you know, up to nine, up to, you know, six to seven to me. For me, it's about five to five to seven really is an optimal level. Um, but what we, I think we really need to think about not going high, high rise and also locating all that high density housing with really, really, really good public transport so that, that people don't have to drive. Otherwise, you're building high-rise sprawl and putting a lot of people in a very dense environment and exposing, and then having to put a lot of traffic on the streets. So what we need to be thinking about is how we get really, really good public transport there urgently, and so people don't have to drive. Um, that the, you know, there's no choice. There's, and then you really need to co-locate that with with supermarkets, schools, all the sorts of social infrastructure that means that people don't have to drive somewhere to go and get all the things that they need for daily living. Um, so I think that's what I mean. We have some really, really big challenges ahead of us and I I, I think you know it does require the public to, to engage in the conversation uh, and it also requires developers to stop you know, building this high, high rise and proposing those. I don't think that's a good solution at all. Just on that point, I mean, you know, you've half answered it with that last point, but your know, grown-up conversation, how difficult is it to have one when you've got developers uh, and bodies like Vic Roads, uh, the RACV, etc., having so much pressure on government? Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I mean, it is. It's, 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 you know, there's a strife of interest um, and... We need to, and there's also the strife of interest from the public as well. The public, you know, save our suburbs, um, you know, are getting involved in having debates and not blocking all higher, you know, higher density development. Now, I don't think that's that's not that's not the solution. Um, it's not the solution just to let the developers do their own thing. I think that's. I think there needs to be more regulation, um, and I'm not saying you know, regulate so it just makes it impossible for people to make profit. But I just don't think that it's a good idea that we end up with high, high rise buildings. Um, I don't think that's good for anyone really. Uh, I don't know if it's good. Maybe it's good for their profits, but it's not a good solution. And it's certainly not a good solution where we've got a lot of those in the the inner city being, you know, built by investors who um, don't even live in the country. Uh, that's not, and, and especially if they're not rented, because that means that we're not really solving our housing problem. You know, we need to have affordable housing. So there's a really, I think <laughs> there is a strife of interest about this. I don't know that we're, uh, I don't believe really that we've 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 really got it quite nailed in terms of um, bringing together all the players and having a, a forum on it to actually solve the problem. And I think that's really what's required is. Um, a grown-up conversation about how we move forward to produce good outcomes for the community to save our livability of Melbourne as a very livable city. Um, how do we, we how do we densify, but doing it in a way that really does preserve what we love and um, enjoy about living in a city like this. Um, but at the same time, people have to make a profit. I mean, that's the, the private sector, but not so much so that it means that livability is affected and that we don't produce good outcomes for the long, you know, for future generations. What sort of a contribution does um, greenery and especially trees make to um, the urban environment? It's really critical, actually. It's interesting, um, green space, there's a lot of evidence now, you know, access to green space increases physical activity. People are more likely to walk when they live in an area where it's got um, nice public open space, um, well-designed public open space. It's good for mental health because exposure to nature is 
restorative and it reduces people's mental fatigue. Uh, it's good for social interactions. You know, you see people down at the park with their local, their dogs uh, and their children and they interact with one another and that's good for building community. So there's a lot of benefits from having high-quality public open space and I think that's a really critical thing as we densify is that we make sure we rate, maintain and extend our public open space to ensure that... Um, the people, as we densify people and, and, and houses uh, have smaller yards, they're going to need more public open space. So this is a really uh, critical part of the um, urban planning agenda, I think, that is really important that we need to think about, particularly as we uh, move into densifying the city. You know, where are children going to play? And we do want children to live in the city and we do want adolescents to live in the city. Um, where are they going to play? You know, what other spots? If you go to a city like New York, you see, you know, ovals, um, sorry, um, basketball courts and lots of little pockets where, you know, kids can go off and let off steam and have fun. And I think that's the city I'd love to see us, you know, creating in Melbourne. One of the issues we've been covering on this program in recent weeks is an attempt by the commissioners in the city of Brimbank to flog off um, pocket parkland to developers and, the, you know, we've, we've, and the community, of course, is fighting to retain it for that very purpose, I guess. Um, so, uh, interesting one, actually, and I have, I have some thoughts on that if you'd like to hear that. Yes, sure, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, our research shows actually that in terms of public and phys- being physically active, it's the larger public open spaces that encourage people to be physically active, uh, particularly when they're well designed. Now, I've seen the images of some of the parks in Brimbank and, you know, just the, the flat piece of land with a you know, path going through, nothing else. Now... Our research shows that they're not necessarily... um, They don't necessarily increase people's physical activity. They're not very interesting. Uh, The lots of little pocket parks may not be beneficial for people being being physically active. Um, I'm not quite sure of the evidence around mental health, and and so I preface my remarks having not looked at that. I think what we need to think about is how can we maximise the benefit of what green space that's available and minimise any harm. I'm talking about disorder. You know, if it's not well maintained, it's not good for the community. In fact, there's evidence showing that where you've got disorder or it's not very interesting public space, it's not very well used. So I'm wondering is what's the potential for, um, you know, really picking out, you know, the larger pieces, really putting the money that's taken from what the smaller pieces of land, putting that into... Um, um, retrofitting the, the existing ones to make them much better public open spaces. So I have some sympathy with the, I'm not sure what the formula should be, uh, but I do have some sympathy with the idea of improving the quality of what's there. In fact, we have got evidence showing that um, both for physical activity and for mental health, it's, it's the quality of public open space as well as its size and proximity that makes it, um, improves mental health and physical outcomes. So having higher quality public open space is really critical and if one way of achieving that is selling off some of the smaller bits and using that money to improve the quality of you know, others, ensuring that there's you know, some equal distribution across um, communities, I, I have some sympathy for that. How do you turn this sort of research into political action? Well, we, out, we have a centre of excellence in healthy, livable communities and we have three nodes, one in Melbourne, one in Perth and one in Brisbane. These are the three fastest growing cities in the country. And so we have advisory groups that work with us which are made up of policymakers and practitioners so that when we're doing our research, we're you know, trying to get their input into making sure that we're asking 
policy relevant questions and we're hoping that as a result of the partnership that when we have findings that that will help influence their decision making so in you know, evidence-based decision making rather than you know thinking this is a good idea or um, and if they do have think they've got a good idea you know if we can evaluate it to see what impact it has on the community so there's sometimes you know the, the research is not there and people have to move but we'd like to be able to evaluate that and to provide some feedback so that you know as development goes on we don't keep on making mistakes so we've got this virtuous circle of you know prompt feedback that actually allows people to make better decisions because I think it's quite a challenging space in the uh, urban planning to you know to get it get, to get it right. Is there also a you know, maximum size of a city that makes it sustainable and workable, or can it get too big? I mean, the the developers, for instance, one of their screams about affordable housing is that it'd be more affordable if the government make, made more land available on the fringes, etc., which of course encroaches on the environment. Uh, but is there a size at which the city becomes unsustainable? Well, I, you know, if you look across the city of Melbourne, you know, in a in a city is you know reasonably dense, isn't it? You know, thirty five houses per hectare. It's not really mm. dense. You know, Fitzroy, those sorts of areas. Mm. Um, you know, it's sort of it's got a bit of a vibe. Uh, but you go out beyond ten kilometres of this city, and it's very low density. And so there's no reason for us to be extending putting affordable housing on the fringe. In my opinion, um, I think it's. Um, or dare I say, a lazy approach to solving the problem of affordable housing. Mm. I think there are other solutions that we could look to. And, and can I just butt in and say, I think the developer's version of affordable housing is fairly relative anyway. In terms of what we, in terms of what real affordability is for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we have got a housing affordability issue um, going on in Australia, as we hear in the media on a day-to-day basis. But I don't believe that just building large houses on smaller blocks on the urban fringe and going and encroaching onto uh, land that we could be we need for um, agriculture is a solution for our affordable housing problem. That's just to me that's a lazy solution. The solution is to make better use of all the infrastructure, all the facilities, to provide people with high-quality public transport so they don't have to have two or three cars to be able to live. To me, that is a much, much, much better and affordable way of living. And a more sustainable, which is where we started with this conversation, is mm. about how do we have a more sustainable city. A more sustainable city is one where people have the choice to walk, cycle, use public transport, then to drive. They don't have to drive, and I think that's really a really critical factor here. Uh, and that requires us to think about, you know, where we locate jobs and all those things as well. Um, so it's not just about um, and not just about public transport, how people can get to their jobs in a more efficient way. Um, I think, you know, there's a whole... It's where We live in a system, and we've got to optimise the system if you understand, you know what I mean. You know, you change one, you won't change one part of a, a system, and something else changes in response to that. So we have to sort of look at how we can optimise the system to enhance livability and to get to, to have for all of us, not just those of us living in inner Melbourne, having all the sort of amenity that it makes Melbourne so livable, but everyone in the city being able to have that. So you know, there's definitely an equity issue. Is that we build houses on the urban fringe and people have an affordable house, i.e. they can buy it, but they don't have any of the amenity that makes for a livable city. And once you start to live in those houses and you don't have any of the local amenity, that means it's not really affordable living. And I think we have to differentiate between an affordable house 
and affordable living. Yes, indeed. There was a study last year. There was a study last year that you may have been involved in, in fact, which showed that on the fringes you get the the, the less the more affordable house, but overall your costs are, are higher than people living in inner urban areas. So, you know, it is a real problem, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and you don't realise that until you get out there because you think, oh my God, you know, I do, I'm going to have to. I don't have a you know cover public transport. I'm going to have to run two cars. Um, I can't get to any shops and services. I can't get my kid to school without a car. You know, like it's it's really tricky. And um, and what makes me cry and worries me is that people may not realise that when they're moving there. Mm. Uh, well, look, we're going to have to wind up there, I'm sorry, Billy, but um, we'd like to keep this running. But we will keep it running because we are planning a similar discussion on the fourth Wednesday in May. So we'll be in touch again and we'll, uh, we'll keep discussing these issues. Um, thanks very much okay. for appearing on the show. Okay. okay, thank you, Billy, and that's been invaluable, yeah. Um, okay. We're going to go to a track. This is Rihanna. Just say so that was Billy Giles Courty from the uh, Macaquie Centre. And uh, oh, there's the phone coming up. And we're going to go to Redfern very shortly. Yes. And this is uh, Rihanna with American Oxygen, which I thought was a very interesting song because it's about uh, police violence in uh, the United States. Why is that appropriate? You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, and we have on the line Auntie Jenny Munro. How's it going? Good, Corey. How are you, my dear? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. I think um, the fact that I was just playing Rihanna would uh, impress Eva the Diva. Yeah, if Eva the Diva was here, but she's at school. (laughs) Oh, well, that's good, that's good. Mm. All right, so what's been happening? Um, So we called you because this is a... Um, a show about all sorts of city issues and you're fighting for affordable housing for Aboriginal people in Redfern. Yes, that's what we're here for. Yep. Um, we've had a pretty massive clean-up at the embassy because of the storm last week. Um, about We lost about six tents in the storm. Wow. So, Would that uh, have been out of a total of about ten? Probably, yeah, about ten or twelve, eh? Did the kitchen tent make it? It survived, but it got wet. So we're hoping to replace that too. Mm. Auntie uh, Jenny, we've had you on this program before, but can you just explain for those who might have missed it why the tent embassy is there in Redfern? Um, we set up last year on Sorry Day, and that was in relation to the um, proposal uh, the Aboriginal Housing Company has, the Pemaloy Project which is um, a commercial development, shops, the retail sector, um, student accommodation, and um, and then the last construction phase is supposed to be housing for our people, 62 houses. They have no... Um, they have funds for the shop, shopping, the retail uh, phase and the student accommodation, but none to build the houses for our people. And even if they did, 62 wouldn't be enough. No, definitely not. This was a thriving community of over 100 families um, and it should... Um, our protest is uh, um, based on the fact that the whole of the land should be used for housing and not anything else. Um, given the housing crisis for our people right around the country, um, it is exactly the same here in um, this city, like all the other cities. Uh, houses are at a premium and our people... Uh, being low income, um, really get shafted in relation to um, public housing. I think there has been, um, I'm told, no funds, 
no public housing developed or no housing built on Aboriginal lands, um, and that's a um, government directed directive. We don't know how long that's been on the books, but it's been for quite a few years now. Mm-hmm. And this was more or less the problem that you came up against, and and successfully, you know, had a scheme to solve back in the seventies when the block started. Is that correct? Yep. Yep, that was that did exactly Corey. This place, um, the vision for the block was to grow it outwards and eventually um, take up Hugo Street all the way to Abercrombie. But that vision has never been realised. Um, uh, the person that um, is employed, this is the vision that we've had to um, been forced to live with his. Pemoy uh, project with the commercial and student accommodation, and, mm. and really does nothing to um, cater to the housing needs for our people in this uh, city, in this area, the inner city area. Mm. Isn't it the final sting in the tail that they call it the Pemoy? Pemoy. Well, that's um, insulting to the memory of a man who stood and defended all of the Sydney land uh, uh, with his life. There's a couple of areas around inner Melbourne, inner Sydney at least. Uh, Redfern is clearly one, and, and the rocks and above at Miller's Point, which was, that area was saved, of course, in the Union Green Bands in the 70s. Uh, both those areas now for which over which developers have been drooling for decades uh, are being handed over to developers. It's significant, isn't it, that governments are now giving developers what they want? Yes, yeah, and that's part, a big part of the problem. Um, um, I think... Um, Hackers frothing at the mouth over the, the billion-dollar benefits he gets by building his casino down oh, at the rock. At Barongaroo there, yeah. yeah. yeah well, they've cursed themselves by even calling it after that. That's right. Um, <laughs> and they've had problems on that side and will continue to have problems. There is uh, Whether they realise that there is an Aboriginal um, um, system in operation and those who believe in our system and our, belief, our religion will tell you that they are cursed. They will continue to be cursed until they do the right thing at Barangaroo. Hate to hate that, to hear. That's to remove that, I mean, uh, remove that casino from it and maybe turn it back to what it was intended to for those, all those families that were moved out of there forcibly. Hate to hear that poor old Packer and, and developers are cursed, don't you, Jenny? But, um, uh, one, well, one, actually, one that, of the... <laughs> I think that happened a long time before Barangaroo. You mentioned the Green Burns. Um, Arnie, Jenny, can you talk about the um, deal that you've struck with the CFMEU? No, well, we're, we're in discussions with a lot of um, union bodies at the moment just to um, see where we can um, progress this... Um, matter. Um, we've had some very positive talks with CFMEU about um, when it comes to the construction phase, uh, hopefully having a green ban on, on the site here so no construction will go ahead. And how's the campaign going? I mean, do you, do you feel you're winning it and you're going to gonna beat them? Um, well, the problem here is he will resort to the white man's law, which will mean the courts, which will mean... Again, the, the housing company has deed and title to the land. It's whether we have rights as Aboriginal people on Aboriginal land, and it'll be an inter- interesting case for mm. any court, any court to have to grapple with. So I think that's why he's um, uh, not very keen on taking it through any courts. Well, you know, under white man law, he's breaking the constitution of the Aboriginal Housing Corporation. 
well, he's breached the Constitution many times. He's um, one of the most corrupt individuals that you'll see in the country, regardless of colour, and yet he's been able to get away with this corruption for a very long time because it suited the purposes of the state government. Mm. Um, yes, Nick, cleansing that's gone on here in Redfern has been some 15 to 20 years in the making. I think um, you've seen that, Corey, from the time you've been up here, how we've been pushed right out of um, this suburb and this place that we called home for a very long time. Can you talk about the role of um, drugs in there? Well, um, with the corruption um, um, that's so endemic in um, different sectors of society, um, um, this community, I suppose, were um, subjected to that and, um, you know, the, the, the notoriety, notoriety, the dysfunction that came to this community was all part of that problem with drugs and the people that um, actually um, initially pushed those heavy drugs in this community were very close to that family. Um, um, he conveniently uh, protected his own families while they were dealing drugs and had other people in the community arrested. So. Um, as part of the reason why the dysfunction became um, so apparent so quickly in this this community, through the um, deliberate pushing of the hard drugs into the community by so-called respectable people. Mm. On that point, the the recent full-length um, film version of Redfern now I thought was quite magnificent. I don't know what you thought, uh, but uh, it also again showed Redfern as a a centre of Indigenous community in Sydney. And yet here we have a government trying to destroy that. Yeah, um, well, I think you know Redfern now is was a nice story, but it's not the reality of what's happening here. And um, mm. even though they did sort of knit some of the um, current day scenes of, uh, scenes of the embassy into the story, but it doesn't explain how it got to this. Uh, I think that needs to be done probably in more uh, in a more serious way. Yeah, yeah. Maybe more of a um, documentary style thing than a fictional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we need to um, let truth be the guiding light about what's happening here in this community and uh, the same with any other community. I mean, the fact that the government federally and at state level has deprived Aboriginal people of housing for a very long time is self-evident given the crisis right around the country and uh, the fact that they actually um, had policies that directly forbid any development or houses being built in communities I think is an indictment on um, this whole country from the government down. But their logic leaves a bit to be desired because in, in flogging off all the public housing in Millers Point, they said, well, the money will be redirected into social housing, but it's a bit silly because it already is. Well, it was uh, social housing there. They, they yeah. destroyed social housing to create social housing, so tell me where the... So they're really, they're really putting a price on where social housing ought to go. You put social housing yeah. out somewhere where, as we talked in our previous interview, where people are up for expenses and can't survive very well anyway, yeah. and you I hand over the, the private, the big land to uh, the developers. Yeah, I think uh, they coined a phrase for it a very long time ago called social engineering, didn't they? Ethnic cleansing. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Can you talk about what's um, coming up on May 1? Um, we're having our rally here. Um, um, sadly, this community have um, um, just lost one of our great fighters recently, and um, mm. 
his funeral be on Friday morning and he's asked um, those people that attend to um, um, participate in the last march for him um, on the Friday from Belmore Park back to Redfern at 4 o'clock. And this is to support the um, communities in Western Australia and other parts of the country that are being forcibly closed by the government. Fight it till the end, hey? Um, Yeah, I think we... um, well, you know, on a personal note, um, I've always been um, a fighter for right for having the rights of our people recognised in a country that has deliberately, uh, uh, by design, ignored our existence, ignored our rights, ignored our laws uh, in this country for 227 years. Our people suffer greatly. Um, one of the greatest insults is that... Um, we're still not even supposed to have a system of law and governance. And when you look at history and look at what's been shown to be the truth, our, we are the oldest um, um, people on the planet. We have systems of law and governance and religion that are as old as we are, and yet there is no respect given to that by um, the Australian people. Or uh, Well, it's not even so much the Australian people. It's a government push, I mean... We're a threat to their legitimacy as the... Oh, dear Jenny, I'm going to have to cut you off because time's up. The next station, next program's coming in. But look, thanks for your time this morning. We wish you, we'll keep in touch and we wish you all the best with this campaign. We hope you win it. I'm sorry Thank for making you. you wake up so early. <laughs> That's all right, Corey. <laughs> Thank you. All right, see, so, yeah, we're going to go out with um, a track now. This is um, Gene Kelly singing in the rain as a uh, tribute to the Sydney Storms. Yep, we did a bit of that last week. And to the fact that it pissed all over the uh, the Anzac Parade last Saturday. <laughs>